you turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus and chapter 20. There are church Bibles at the back of the church. And uh, if you'd like to avail yourself of one of those, as we continue to work our way through the book of Exodus. We come to the day of the last of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. And before we read the Ten Commandments again and consider the message, if you bow your heads with me as we pray before we read God's word. Lord God, you send the, your Holy Spirit to till the soil of our hearts, that we might not be like that rocky path in the parable, not like that stony ground or the thorny ground, but that we would be good soil hearers this morning. As the seed of your word is proclaimed, that there would be a wonderful harvest. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Exodus 20, I'll read from verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbour's. Amen. We thank the Lord for his holy and inerrant word. In a fascinating book that, uh, I didn't buy it, but I read the the. the uh, preface on Amazon, it's called Affluenza, not Influenza, Affluenza, How to Be Successful and Stay Sane. It's not by Joel Olstein or anything like that, but it's by a guy called Oliver James. And he analyses the dysfunction of our contemporary Western culture that he says has been generated by the relentless material acquisition and greed that is characteristic of our age, which is so different to any other age. And in the preamble that I read on Amazon, it said, the classic, this book explains while being too focused on money, possessions, appearance, and fame makes us more mentally ill. And traveling around the world, Britain's best known psychologist explored how the affluenza virus was affecting citizens differently in New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, China, Russia, Denmark, the United States and England. 
And he writes, the author writes, consumption holds out the false promise that an internal lack can be fixed by an external thing. And he says, therefore, we medicate our misery through buying things. And then he illustrates the point by comparing our attitude today to the attitude of maybe, um, maybe you know, some could remember it here, but maybe our parents after World War II. And he says, people no longer buy soap to make them clean. They buy soap because they believe the promise it makes them beautiful. People no longer buy toothpaste to kill bacteria. People buy toothpaste to create white teeth. Cars are now for prestige rather than travel. And foodstuffs such as oranges are for vitality, not for nutrition. And this is a great phrase. He says, needs were replaced by the confected wants that people did not know they had. And one marketing executive said, what makes this country great is the creation of wants and desires. He should be taken out and shot for that one. But um, what makes this country great is the creation of wants and desires. And the creation of dissatisfaction with the old and outmoded. And advertising at its best is making people feel that without their product, you are a loser. It's telling, isn't it? And it actually hits home. And the, the author is saying our culture is out of control. Our culture today in the West is out of control. With the constant creation of dissatisfaction generating needs that people didn't even know they, they need. So we medicate our misery through buying things. In other words, we inhabit a time and place that badly needs to hear the Tenth Commandment. That badly needs the message of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. And the Tenth Commandment, tenth commandment which as I've you know, been speaking about through the commandments, says we'll come to it in the next couple of weeks. You have God's ceremonial law. You have God's civil law. You have God's moral law. But definitely the moral law still applies to all people at all times everywhere. And we'll come to some, you know, some of that, how that's been fulfilled in the coming weeks. But the Tenth Commandment speaks to our materialism, our dread, that unless we have more material possessions, we're missing out on something. The right brand, the right kind of possessions. Or as the language of the Tenth Commandment says and acknowledges, unless we have that right relationship, unless we have that right, right relationship, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's wife. Unless I have it, whatever it is, I cannot be happy, I cannot be whole, I cannot be content. And what we're trying to do is fix an internal lack by external means. So the message of Moses' the last word of these ten words is that will never work. Because the tenth commandment my friend, calls us to find our contentment somewhere else and only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know that to be true in our hearts. True peace, true contentment is not found in the acquisition of things, but it's only found in the gospel. That's the only place where you'll find peace. It's the only place you'll find contentment is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I want to consider the Bible's teaching on the Ten Commandments under, under two headings. Under two headings. First of all, the diagnostic that God gives in the Ten Commandments. And secondly, the dividend that God offers. Firstly, the diagnostic that God provides. And secondly, the dividend that God offers. First of all, the diagnostic that God provides. The Ten Commandment is set apart from the other nine in one respect. I wonder if you notice that in the language of the Ten Commandment. It explicitly addresses the heart. It explicitly addresses the heart. Now Jesus, as we know, transforms the Ten Commandments in Matthew's Gospel, if you remember, and he applies it to our hearts. You know, thou shalt not murder, he applies it to anger. Thou shalt not commit adultery, he applies it to lust. But this one explicitly addresses the heart. The other nine, while dealing as we've expounded them by implication, and in, in my expositions we've dealt with motive and attitude and action, they start on behaviour. as actions or failures to act or to speech or failures to speak. Other gods, blasphemy, Sabbath-breaking, dishonouring your parents, murder, adultery, false witness, theft. There's a focus there on doing, but by implication and application, we, we looked at the attitudes of the heart that stand behind them. But the Tenth Commandment doesn't start with doing, but with the attitudes. It goes straight to the heart. The Tenth Commandment goes straight to the heart. Because the Tenth Commandment focuses implicitly on what lies belief beneath and behind our actions and it aims to speak to our consciences and to our hearts. Many of you, like me, have had medical scans over the years, far too many, and they are diagnostic tools to reveal what is going on underneath. Behind the symptoms that took us to the hospital or the doctor in the first place, and no doubt it is a very scary thing when you hear those words, hmm, I'll have to, uh, we'll have to take a biopsy, they look terrible words, or you see, worse, you know, a cancerous mass, or a blocked artery, or a bleed on the brain. But as hard as it is, as hard as it is, I've reflected, that is actually data we need to know. It's actually important we know that if we're going to get the help that we need. And in many ways, I thought that is what the Tenth Commandment is. It is a spiritual MRI. It is a spiritual CAT scan of the heart. And it offers a diagnostic deep into the structures of sin that motivate us and drive us to confuse in our head inordinate and out of control want. Desire for what we think are urgent needs. And when we notice the diagnostic itself, what it is that God shows us here, we discover often that it's covetousness that stands behind the sins that listed in the other nine commandments. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 10, sorry, 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil. For it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs of evil. Many pangs, all kinds of evil. See, all kinds of sin flows out of covetousness. 
For example, Ephesians 5 verse 5 and Colossians 3 verse 5 calls covetousness idolatry. John Piper says, Have you considered the Ten Commandments begin and end with virtually the same commandment? You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not covet. They're almost equivalent. Coveting is desiring anything or someone or something more than God. In a way that shows a lack, a loss of contentment and satisfaction in him. And we know that John Piper speaks so well of that. Satisfaction in him. See, covetousness is a heart that is divided between two gods. And Paul says it's idolatry. That's what you're doing when you're giving in to greed. That's what you're giving, doing when you give in to covetousness. You're committing the sin of idolatry. Consider Amos 8, verses 4 and 6, where God contemns, condemns people who grow impatient with the Sabbath out of a desire to earn more money. When the Lord's Day is an inconvenience, when gathering on the Lord's Day is an inconvenience in the drive to make money, covetousness has fueled our breaking of the fourth commandment. Consider Luke 15, the prodigal. The story goes that the son then told his father, I need the inheritance now. Have you ever thought about that? How hurtful that must have been? I'd rather have the money than have you around. I'd rather have the money than have you around. And what drives that disrespect? What drives that dishonouring of the Father? It is covetousness. So he, he covets and he dishonours his father and his mother. James 4 verse 2, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. How many murders have been committed? Because someone wants what they can't have. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight. How many people quarrel? How many people fight? How many people cause trouble in the church? Because they want someone else's position or they want some influence that they haven't got. Covetousness lies behind breaches of the sixth commandment. Or in Exodus 20 verse 17, it is immediately clear. The sin of adultery in the seventh commandment is often fueled by covetousness. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife. He implicitly says it. In Joshua 7, there is that tale, that sobering tale, the story of Achan's sin. Israel triumphed over to Jericho and Achan stole, he stole some of the spoil from their conquest. When it's time to do battle against the city of Ai, Israel is soundly defeated. The Lord is disciplining them because of Achan's theft. But what lies behind Achan's theft? Listen to Achan's confession. When I saw amongst the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighed 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. What was behind his theft? Covetousness. Theft is the fruit of which covetousness is the root. You want, 
You want, you want, and it leads some to steal. Or Proverbs 21 verse 6, the giddens of treasure by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapour and a snare of death. So covetousness, thou shalt not covet, drives breaking the, the, the ninth commandment about false witness. Thou shalt not bear false witness. So we could go on and on, multiplying biblical examples and examples in our own lives or examples that we've just read about this week maybe in the news in which covetousness is behind and is the fuel for all kinds of transgressions of God's law in many varied ways. So the Tenth Commandment unmasks us. It unmasks us. It shows us the selfishness and greed that fuels the waywardness and sin in our hearts. Listen to James. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives, brings forth death. So covetousness, greed, is one of the engines of our heart's rebellion. It's the underlying cause of many of the symptoms of our spiritual malaise. We confuse inordinate wants for absolute need. We confuse what we want for need. And we tell ourselves that in order to be fulfilled, in order to be content, I must have it. I must have it. Like our first parents in the garden, they saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, desirable for making one wise. Just like them, we take and eat forbidden fruit. We want it, we'll have no rest until we have it. Our discontentment festers and we find objects to latch onto. And it begins to whisper to us some version of the age-old lie that heard by Eve in the Garden of Eden. That until we have that relationship, that until we have the approval of my parents, that until I have that, ho that house, that house that so-and-so has, until I have that home that I've always dreamed of, until my child excels at school, until I meet my spouse, until I have the body type that I've always dreamed of, until, 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 until. And surely, slowly and surely, those two words, those deadly words, come off our lips. If only. If only. If only I had. If only I looked like. If only they thought about me this way. How we need to be aware of if only. Far from motivating us to find true contentment. It will always lead to a dissatisfied life and an idolatrous heart. I came across a poem in my studies this week that I think gets at the bankruptcy of a life that's lived in the grip of if only. Jason Lehman wrote it when he was 14 years old, a 14-year-old boy called Jason Lehman. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colourful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. 
It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was the middle age I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. My life was over and I never got what I wanted. It's sobering, isn't it? The insight of that 14-year-old boy. Beware of living your life for if only, because it's the lie of the devil. It comes from the serpent and it will always leave you empty. If only. If only. That's the diagnostic. That is the result that the GP will, will say. He wants to expose the bankruptcy of if only. But praise God. Praise God. For not only the, divid, the diagnostic, but the dividend that God offers in the gospel. The dividend that God offers in the gospel. You see, there are not only sins forbidden, there are duties commanded. We're not only warned about dissatisfaction or discontentment, or avarice or acquisition, covetousness and greed. We've been called to true contentment. We've been called in the gospel to true contentment and genuine satisfaction of soul. That is the gospel. Because, because the gospel, the law, it reveals your sin, but it and it shows you your need of a saviour, but praise God, he's provided one. Paul warned one Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, his young protege, against those who imagine that godliness is a means of gain. There were people then, as there are people today, who think you can get rich on religion. You'd love to see all the, pros I wouldn't love to see, but you think of all the prosperity teachers' bank accounts. You think they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Not a bit. Not a bit. And Paul is warning Timothy about them. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of the money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul says we need to understand, Timothy, that though there are those who believe that godliness is a means of gain. The truth is, godliness with contentment is great gain. It is riches, and it is for those riches we must inspire, aspire. There's an investment that we must make that will pay dividends, that will never fail to satisfy our hearts. Paul talks about it in Philippians 4 verse 11. Not that I'm speaking about being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am 
to be content. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What is the secret pool of contentment? What is the secret pool of contentment? What is the secret we need to know? Our discontented hearts need to know the secret. And he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's Paul's version of David's prayer. Psalm 73, what, I have, what have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I am satisfied when I have you. That was David's prayer. It was Paul's prayer. He is enough. He is sufficient for my heart. There are riches in God that satisfy. And when I have him, I am content. It's Paul's articulation of Augustine's prayer. O Lord, thou hast made me for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That's true, isn't it? Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. And when we get him, our hearts find rest. When we have Jesus, our hearts are at peace. We find repose. Disquiet is replaced by contentment. Our longing for it evaporates because we found it in Christ. That author at the beginning said, consumption holds out the false promise that an internal lack, that hole, that emptiness, that loneliness can be met by an external thing. It can't. Of course it can't. You can never plug that God-shaped hole in your heart with material possessions. You ask the richest people in the world. They just move, you know, they move from relationship to relationship, from party to party, from super yacht to super yacht, from aeroplane to aeroplane. Are they content? Have they found that inner peace? Have they found that rest? Because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. Where? In Christ Jesus. My friend, you must hear that Jesus Christ is satisfactory treasure. That Jesus Christ is enough. That Jesus Christ is sufficient. Hebrews 13 verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you and forsake you. Is it enough? It is enough that he will never leave you or forsake you. So we can't, can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Do you believe that? That the Lord is your helper. So what can man do to you? If the Lord is my helper, if the Lord will never leave me, if he is with me, if Jesus Christ in his presence becomes my treasure, then I can learn to be content in every circumstance. And I can fend off the love of money. I can say no to the prosperity teachers and I can deal with my sinful heart.
Because the throbbing discontent of the heart is a signal that you need Jesus Christ. That you've been looking in the wrong places for satisfaction. That you haven't learned yet in whatever circumstance you're in to be content because you have him. If you rest on Jesus Christ, you truly can be content in every circumstance. But the tenth commandment is a call and an invitation to say no to the serpents, if only, and to say yes to the riches that are offered to you in the gospel by Christ himself. So we need to say to our hearts, heart, you're discontented because you've been looking in all the wrong places. That contentment heart you're seeking will never find because the wells from which you drink are full of salt water. That's what lust is. That's what theft is. That's what pride is. That's what insincerity is. That's what greed is. It's salt water. It looks so attractive. It looks like it will slake your thirst. But the more you drink, the thirstier you become. But there's good news for you, oh discontented heart. There is good news for you, oh discontented heart of mine. Because a fountain is open of living water. And if only you would drink there, you would never thirst again. That is, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the promise of Christ. That he will give you streams of living water. And if you'll drink from him, you'll never thirst again. So what are you doing? Oh, discontented heart of mine. Complaining you never arrived. Complaining you've never got the home you've always wanted. And that you never, you think is your entitled Jew. Because God has given his greatest treasure in his son. How shall he, who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how shall he, not also along with him, graciously give us all things? So heart, seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Get Christ, the infinite treasure that is Christ. Come to the fountain and drink of Christ. Your needs will be supplied. Your heart will be satisfied. You'll never thirst again. So look at the diagnostic God provides and what lies behind much of the sin and misery and discontentment is covetousness. But look at the dividend that God offers, contentment in every circumstance when you have Christ. May God help us to find our rest in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, forgive us for turning aside to pursue the broken citizens, cisterns of this world. The failed promises our world offers by believing that this is where contentment can be found. I pray that we would come to the fountain of living water and find your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, and drink until our thirst is satisfied and our hearts content. In Jesus' name. Amen.